Good morning and welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. Now, really quick, if you listen to other podcasts of mine, like Reckless Grace and the Faith Mountain Ministries podcast uh, on other platforms, uh, we're going to consolidate everything down into one location and one platform. So for those of you who are listening to this as a radio broadcast, I'm in the Midwest, just keep doing what you're doing. But if you want to listen to this on demand and previous podcasts, just go to my website, billvanderbush.com, and go to the podcast page, and it will direct you to all the platforms that the podcast is available, like iTunes, Spotify, and sometimes you can even get it through the radio station that you're listening to. So... Let's dive straight into this today. I want to do a sequel, a follow-up to the message I did on Easter. On Easter Sunday, I did a message called How It Started and How It's Going. A little bit of church history. We crammed 2,000 years of church history into 30 minutes. We're going to try to do the same today and tie up some loose ends for you. And in order to get started, let's, let's just invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to be with us in this moment. In this time of communion, in these broadcasts, I don't want to just give you head knowledge. I want to draw your attention to an awareness of the presence of Jesus, who is closer to you and I than the breath we're breathing right now. Uh, you, You can't get away from his presence any more than you can try to get away from the air that you breathe by moving from one room to another. No, in him we live, we move, we have our being. Let's just take a moment right now and not just engage our head to receive information, but to engage our spirit to receive revelation from the very presence of the Lord himself. I'm going to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read and then talk to you a little while. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In the study I did on Easter, how it started and how it's going, We talked about the first thousand years of Christian history. And if you recall that podcast, we talked about how the cross was aimed at sin, death, and hell, and how Jesus Christ conquered it all on the cross, removing the veil of distance and separation and restoring our relationship back with God as Father. 
Then we talked uh, around the 11th century, how St. Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, came up with this idea to illustrate the gospel to the English. And he made God out to be kind of a feudal lord who had been offended and dishonored and demanded satisfaction. And the cross was that punishment for his offended honor as he took out his wrath and vengeance on his own son in our place. And perhaps the two biggest takeaways you got from the last study was, and I hope you caught these, was how that shifted, the shifting of the cross uh, being aimed at sin, death, and hell into aiming it directly at the Father. And now the Father had become our enemy. He was our problem. And we also talked about how sin was redefined as a legal issue, when in fact, sin is, spiritually speaking, a medical issue, something to be healed from, which is why Jesus said, when hanging out with sinners and being criticized for it, he said, listen, the sick need a doctor. He understood what the problem was here. James even carries this into uh, the, the New Testament letters when he says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man <clears throat> avails much. So let's pick up here by jumping ahead a few centuries to a time of great protest known as the Protestant Reformation. I'm a big fan of this period of time in history because so much shifted. And the reason I'm saying I'm a fan of that period of time in history, I've read so many books and things about it and done so much study about it, went over to Wittenberg, Germany, went through Martin Luther's place, just just all kinds of as much research as I can possibly even think to afford to do because I feel like we're in a Reformation period right now. And I believe that the change to the church is just as cataclysmic now as it was in the year 1517 when the Protestant Reformation kicked off. In the 1500s, for those of you who may not, not be really familiar with the Reformation, reformers begin to reject the Catholic Church's teaching and the claim that the Catholic Church had to be the sole source of salvation for all people. Now, Protestants insisted that Christ and his death on the cross did everything necessary to save us and paid our debt in full. Now, the Catholics had a distinction in their understanding. Christ paid the eternal debt for our sins so that our guilt is completely removed after baptism. But they said there is still a temporary debt, which we must pay either in this life or after death in purgatory. And this was Really a brilliant idea as far as fundraising goes. And the Catholic Church, they claim to have the authority to grant the remission of temporal sins. And Catholics genuinely believed that Christ's sacrifice was so great that even a single drop of his blood would suffice for the sins of all humankind. Uh, you know, then come along people like the Virgin Mary and other saints who accomplished, you know, holy miraculous works. But that meant that there was a lot of leftover, so what we're going to call merits. So the Catholics actually came up with a book called The Treasury of Merit. And merits were able to be applied in the form of indulgences. And you got these indulgences by performing specific holy works or same particular prayers. And, of course, paying over some money. 
And in the mid-1500s, the Council of Trent actually condemned anybody who denied the power of the indulgence, and they deemed the doctrine of the indulgence to be infallible. Now, Protestants responded to this by saying, wait, 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 wait a minute. I'm not saved by the merits of Mary or other saints that have gone before. I'm saved by the merits of Christ alone. And they said that God actually imputes or imparts Christ's merits to us, kind of like righteousness credits. And this whole idea actually, by the way, is a boatload of theological nonsense. Some theologians arose and they said they thought that this was way too legalistic. So they came up with this idea to teach us that that Christ came to just simply inspire us to live a good moral life. And this was called the theory of moral influence. In this theory, Christ's death draws the Father and humanity into a loving relationship of reconciliation. And the only way that we can be saved is to do the same thing Jesus did. So again, we're back to works. Now, Augustine actually kicked back against this idea, saying that if the imitation of a righteous man was all we needed to be saved, we wouldn't even need Jesus. We wouldn't speak of Adam and Christ, but we'd talk about Adam and Abel, because Abel was called a righteous man. Abel would be a plenty good example, a fine example of a life of virtue, and that'd be all that we would need. But of course, listen, we understand we need more than just somebody to be an example for us. In the 18th century, during the age of enlightenment, many intellectuals rejected the idea of God as even involved in the world at all. The watchmaker theory, or the clockmaker theory as it's been called, They believed that the universe certainly was created by God, of course, but the hypothesis was that he just decided not to interfere in the affairs of humanity. And this is what is known as deism. God winds up the clock and just walks away, lets everything sort of run on its own. And sometimes I understand it can feel like that. And and so the idea that God has somehow walked away and may or may be not... (laughs) watching us from a distance, has somehow crept into modern evangelical Christian thinking and teaching. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, listen, it's evident every single time you hear ideas of distance and separation, like somehow trying to press in to get closer to a God that's already living within you, or screaming, yelling, praying, begging God to come here, come down, rend the heavens and come down. What are we doing? We are saying we believe that there's a massive chasm between us and God, and he needs to come here and fix some stuff right now. And so when we do that, we are literally living out, in a sense, an evangelical deism of sorts, because we have not yet come to the realization that he is absolutely present with and in us, taken up residence in us, his very presence. The theological uh, term, by the way, for all of this was moralistic therapeutic deism. As C.S. Lewis said that it moved God to our perspective from being a father to being like a grandfather. 
Grandpa God. And like an old grandfather, he said that people have now viewed God like he just enjoys watching the young people enjoy themselves and work out their differences. You know that song, God is watching us from a distance, just needs a slight lyrical alteration into God is watching us from no distance at all. And when we speak of the Christic covenant, I'd like to suggest to you that within the first thousand years of church history, and with history in my corner, by the way, that no requirements have to be met in order for God to forgive you. I want you to think about that for a second. Because Ephesians just said, while we were dead, he made us alive. How much can a dead person do to earn the life that he gives? It's called grace. So the cross became the point where the gap of distance and separation was closed. The grace and forgiveness of God generationally was imputed and imparted to humanity. So the sin issue was dealt with at the cross. The fear of death, no no more need to fear death. Physical death, Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body. That's how little he regarded our need to have fear of what happens to us in this physical body. Because spiritually, we can be united with Christ, seated with him right now in heavenly places, even though physically we're sitting here on this earth. In the spirit, we are in heaven with Christ, seated with him, co-seated with him together with the Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you together in spirit, though physically you and I rest right now in the awareness of time and space here on this earth, there is a greater reality that has transcended death and eliminates, if we will allow it, our fear of death in this body. So sin, death, and hell. And if the sin issue has been taken care of and the fear of death is out of the way, then what do we have to fear of punishment in the afterlife when we know that the grace of God has absolutely saved us, has absolutely rescued, ransomed, completely drawn us into an awareness of our reconciled rest and union with the Father. That's the victory of the cross. And when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and let him be Lord of our life, he assures us daily, moment by moment of this reality. Okay, and that becomes our victory here. Okay, so there's no requirements that you have to meet in order for God to forgive you. His forgiveness is called grace and mercy. And if payment of some kind was necessary to achieve it, then it wouldn't be grace, right? Well, let me give you an illustration here. Let's say that you're eating in a really fancy restaurant. At the end of the meal, the waiter tells you, no charge. The owner has erased the bill. He's canceled the bill. That's scenario number one. Let let me give you scenario number two. A waiter comes over to you in the restaurant and says, no charge. The guy at the table over there paid your bill. The difference between grace here and a third-party transaction should be obvious. Grace is that the owner, the guy in charge, has now given you something for free that you were hoping to or intending to or maybe even willing to pay for, but he's decided to give it to you for free, and it was his 
to give. The third-party transaction idea is that somebody stepped in as a liaison between you and the owner, and he took care of the bill on your behalf. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're right with the owner. In your mind, what you want to know is that the owner himself is reconciled to you, that you're okay with the owner. And that's why Jesus came to proclaim in John's gospel that the Father himself loves you. That what Jesus was about to do on the cross and in the resurrection was not to rescue you from the Father, but to demonstrate the Father's great love for us. That's why 2 Corinthians 5 says that God was in Christ reconciling us to himself. That's the deal. You and I have got to come to the realization that God himself loves us. He's the owner and he's given us grace and he demonstrated it in Christ. He gives us grace, not as a third party transaction, not as a go between between an angry father and an unworthy humanity. He gives us grace because he loves us and he's good. The way God gives us grace theologically speaking, for those of you who are into these big terms, uh, is called preemptive unilateral innocence. Isn't that kind of a beautiful term? Preemptive. In other words, he initiated it. Unilateral. It, it, it has no boundaries and it, it goes across the, the board. And it's, it's for everybody. It's not just for a select few. Innocence. And that means complete impartation of the righteousness of God himself. Whether you and I realize it or not, we've been graced with the righteousness of God. That's why the Bible says you are the righteousness of God in Christ. The in Christ part tells you how it came about. But understand, you are the righteousness of God. Why? Because you're in Christ. How do we get into Christ? 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing, he did the work to bring us in. What do we do? We receive by faith what he did for us. Why in 2 Corinthians 5, when it said God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, we say, okay, well, he did it 100%. But you know, here's our part. Paul goes on to say, be reconciled to God. Since I beg you as an ambassador of Christ, I urge you, be reconciled to God. What is he saying? He's saying God's already made a decision on his end. What's the decision you're making? Are you in a state of, as as Paul wrote in Ephesians, the sons of disobedience? In other words, are you listening to an outside influence, son to a father? Are you listening to an external influence of uh, something that is drawing you into a state of being out of alignment with the heart and the mind, the will of God? And if you are, you're actually living contrary to his intended purpose for you. And when you do that, you're living as if he doesn't even exist or has no bearing or influence on your life at all. In other words, you're living as an independent spiritual person in a physical body, making your way through life, somehow trying to define success on your own terms. And that's not the way we find abundance of life. You might find abundance of material possessions and physical pleasure, but I can tell you the only way that you and I find peace in that place of understanding why we're even alive, is to say yes to Jesus. To basically say, Jesus, I lay my life down. I give you my life. You have it all. Take every part of me. And you know what he does? He teaches you how to live and live more abundantly. To live in a state of peace and rest. To find yourself in a place of wholeness in his presence. 
You know, when, when we talk about preemptive unilateral innocence, think about this. If you and I give away grace like that without demanding somebody repay it, then we do the very thing that gave old Anselm a headache. He believed that you can't treat Satan sinner alike when it comes to mercy. And, and honor? Listen, lords have honor. Peasants don't. So you can't treat the lords and the peasants the same. There's an author named James Bowman. He wrote a book on the history of honor. It's a fascinating book. And he said in his writing, he said this, The lowborn and ill-bred are not as capable of being honorable as the nobility. Literally believing in that time that people in lower classes weren't even seen as having any honor. Honor only belonged to the wealthy and the powerful. And they were obligated to preserve that honor at all costs. And this class system leaked into English Christian teaching and made its way all the way here to the West into America. And think about it like this. Isn't it amazing to, to know, to understand that God honors even the lowliest of human beings? When we read Ephesians chapter 2, around verses 4 to 9, you read the ramifications of the Christic covenant in our grace and innocence which says, but God, who is rich in his mercy and out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, through our trespasses or through our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And I don't know if you caught this part or not, but here's the reason. Here's the ramifications. That he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ in the ages to come. In other words, here's the future for you and I, and that is that God is going to blow us away with his kindness. He's going to show in the ages to come the immeasurable riches of his grace. You think he's good now? You haven't seen anything yet. That's why it says, by grace you've been saved. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Listen, the grace of God comes to us because of his own internal motivation of love. Can you out-sin or out-offend or, or the impulse of that heartbeat of the love of God? Think back to the prodigal son story with me, and we've visited this story dozens of times over the years. Here's an element maybe you haven't thought much about. The fatted calf. The fatted calf was the festive centerpiece of this entire celebration. And the family gathered around to feast on this one delicious offering. And in the old covenant sacrificial system, those covenants were ratified by blood. In Exodus 19, it happened in 24. And each of these times, the sacrifice was there simply to create a covenant. On these occasions, there was no sacrifice being offered because of sin. It was simply offered to seal a covenant with God. Now, there were sacrifices for sin, but it wasn't the only kind of sacrifice there were. There were free will offerings, peace offerings, thank offerings, gift offerings, fulfillment of vows, wave offerings, all kinds of different offerings. And every sacrifice in some way was simply reaffirming the covenant between God and man. And then, listen to this, the new covenant came about. And there's this singular moment of the cross when the blood of Christ alone and the body of Christ alone became the final sacrifice once and for all. And this is the final point I want to make to you today. The cross wasn't just there to pay for your sins. The cross didn't just happen 
to deal with the issue of sin, the cross happened to completely cover every, every offering. The free will offerings, peace offerings, thank offerings, gifts, fulfillment of vows. These are things that you and I have no obligation to offer apart from being motivated by love. The cross even covers all of our worship. It covers all of our efforts. It's the singular moment that once and for all dealt with every sense of obligation that you and I have to please God. That's why, listen to this, that's why in the new covenant it said without faith it's impossible to please God. It doesn't say without works it's impossible to please God. It says without faith. Faith in what? I'd like to suggest to you that the faith is in the work of Christ, in the work of the cross, and in the power of the resurrection. So the sacrifice of God himself that takes away the sins of the world means that all of the effort is dealt with. And now you and I only know him by love. I'll suggest to you if we don't know God by love, we don't know him at all. Union with God is not a matter of legality. It's a relationship of love like a father to a child. And love functions under different rules than law and finance. And of course, it also deals with the sin issue. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, doesn't keep an account of wrongs. The revelation of the love of God means that God is not an accountant when it comes to your sin. When love gives grace, it's a gift. It's not a bribe, not a paycheck. It's a gift. So in establishing the Christic covenant, Christ offered himself as the representative sacrifice of the whole human race. The blood of God in Christ is the gift of the Father himself covering us eternally in an ocean of living grace. God's never been interested in your sacrifices. He owns everything. It's like going to your wife's jewelry box, taking a piece of jewelry out, wrapping it up and giving it to her as a birthday present. To give somebody something they already own is no sacrifice. In, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, you can almost hear the frustration of Jesus when he said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The one who came to call sinners to be with himself is the one who bore their sin as the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And in the Christic covenant, we come to God offering Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for us. And God in return gives us grace, and the covenant is complete. But it's an even bigger deal than that. God gave us Jesus in the first place. He didn't require that we come up with some adequate sacrifice before he'd be reconciled to us. He provided the sacrifice of himself. This is far more than any of us could afford to offer. Paul said it like this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Let me quote Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 25 to you. Since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a mercy place by his blood to be redeemed by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance he passed over former sins. Notice it says he passed over former sins. It doesn't say he required payment for them. N.T. Wright once asked an old bishop in a church his views of the cross. And with a beaming smile, the old bishop said, It's the prelude to the resurrection. 
The cross, I love that. The cross is a victory, the doorway to paradise, the prelude to the resurrection. And that's what we have in Christ, newness of life. Listen, I'm out of time today. My goodness. I just love talking about this stuff. I hope you I hope you have a fascination with and love the gospel as much as I do. But more than that, I hope it draws you to a fascination with Jesus Christ himself. And here's a good prayer. It's a question. Jesus, what in the world did you do? And then let him spend the rest of eternity revealing to you the answer to that question. And you'll stay fascinated with him all the days of your life. So if you don't know Jesus... You're saying, I'm, I messed up my life and I want Jesus into my life. I need, I need help. Listen, anybody who cries out for help, he'll be there. I just say, Jesus, I receive your grace. I need your help. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I give you my life. You be in charge. You take my life. Let it be consecrated to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Teach me how to hear your voice, and how to walk in your ways, how to know you more. Thank you for the cross, for everything you did, and for who you are, for your eternal embrace of grace over me. Thank you, Jesus, that you love even me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us. And Lord, teach us how to love you in return. Wow. Uh, listen, you can write to us. The old-fashioned way is Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258, and address letters to Faith Mountain Ministries or Bill Vanderbush, one or the other. And you can listen to this broadcast again by going to VanderbushMinistries.com or BillVanderbush.com and check out the schedule page. We're going to a lot of places this summer, and we might be near you. Thanks so much for listening. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 